But as we gather to worship together this morning and into the afternoon today, we just we want to come together to celebrate the many good things that God has done. And today being Father's Day in particular, we celebrate, celebrate the blessing of great fathers, fathers who are here with us that we can look to and celebrate, fathers who have gone on to be with the Lord, biological fathers, adoptive fathers, spiritual fathers, and most importantly, I hope that our minds and our eyes and our hearts are turned towards the Heavenly Father after whom the role and office of earthly father is named and modeled. And that comes with the same disclaimer that I made a few weeks ago on Mother's Day. It's worth noting that it is good and right that we celebrate not only our mothers, but also our fathers. But when we take time to look at something that God has given us, that it is good and it is incredible, but it was given to sinful and broken man. And when we take the time to look closely at these blessings, oftentimes we will also notice the situations where mankind has marred these blessings, where our fallenness, our sin has crept in and tarnished what God had designed to be an amazing thing. So as we celebrate Father's Day together, we also recognize that we need to grieve with one another where there is reason to grieve, where maybe fathers have passed away or maybe fathers have not lived to the standard that fatherhood is given in Scripture. And we celebrate when there's reason to celebrate, when we have had good and godly fathers, both of biological nature and men from the church who have stepped in and acted as fathers where maybe fathers weren't present. Given the incredible growth of fatherlessness in our society, I think it's more important than ever for us to engage with this and to do so both in celebration as well as to acknowledge our concern. When I was thinking about this Father's Day message, I decided to take a brief look at Canada's census data from 2021, which was the most recent that was available, and Probably unsurprisingly to most of us, the numbers were not exactly encouraging. I saw a news article this week that uh, Canada just passed the 40 million milestone. Our country now has 40 million people in it. And as of 2021, of those 40 million people, census-wise, 10,638,965 of them were children. And of those 10.6 million children, 2.6 million of them lived in a one-parent family. That's 25% of all children in our country live in a family with only one parent. And of those families, 77% of them were families where the single parent was a woman. Also, in that same time period, depending on whose numbers you believe, between 27 and 60,000 of our children were also in out-of-home care, meaning 
foster care or kinship care or group homes or something like that. But to recognize that 25% of the children in our country are living without one of their parents. 77% of those living without a father. That affects everything about their lives. The stats you can find just about anywhere, it affects their financial stability in the future, incarceration rates, education rates, and so much more. So we as a church need to be ready to celebrate and to equip our men who are fathers and who will become fathers. We as a church need to be willing to support and equip and care for our families. And we need to do everything we can to care for our children, particularly the ones who are living without their parents. And as we do so, we're going to take a look at man of faith. Just as we did on Mother's Day, we looked at the bio of Ruth Piper, the mom of John Piper. Today we're going to look at another important man of faith. I believe he's back up here behind me, George Muller. I'm going to read you a story from Muller's life, and you'll likely remember it, and you'll put it together with this name and this face behind me. living in an English orphanage with over 300 children at this point. Taken from Muller's own autobiography. One morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to buy food. The children were standing, waiting for their morning meal. And Mr. Muller said, Children, you know we must be in time for school. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. At that moment, there was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. Mr. Muller thanked the baker, and no sooner had the baker left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon that he might repair it. Many of us have heard that story somewhere along the way, and this morning we will hear more about this man who is greater than this one anecdote. This was a man who had incredible faithfulness in his God's ability to care and provide. This is a man who was a man known for his life of prayer. It is said that when Mr. Muller passed in his home, there, the floorboards next to his bed actually had grooves in them from where he would go down to his knees in prayer many times a day. I don't know about you, but that is of great conviction and encouragement to me. And before we get too far into Mr. Muller's life, I wanted to, again, acknowledge why we do these biographies on Mother's Day and Father's Day. And 
When I think about this, the first thing that comes to mind is Hebrews chapter 12, which the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the most important genres of literature that we as God's people can take the time to be in, besides Scripture, and Muller had very much to say throughout his autobiographies of the dangers of placing even good Christian reading ahead of the reading of Scripture. He was very clear that often we can get caught in that trap. But if we are spending time in the Word, the other thing that we should definitely be taking some time to do is to read and acknowledge accounts of great men and women of faith who have come before us. Because Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this great cloud of witnesses and how they allow us to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings to us. This is not because Mr. Mueller today is doing something that would allow us to do what God has called us to do. It is because we have great examples of the faith that have been handed down to us that might be encouragements to us, might convict us of where we have failed to do such things, and that we might grow in our own faith. As we dive into the life of George Muller, would you please join with me in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that this great example of faith, this life of faith that we can see in the story of your servant, George Muller, we ask that we would be encouraged, that we would be driven to live lives dedicated to faithfulness, to prayer, to the reading and importance of your word, to caring for one another, and to foremost glorify you. God, you are good. And you have revealed yourself throughout history to be good, and you have shown your character in our lives. You have shown your character in the lives of so many before us. May our eyes be turned towards you, and may the stories of these lives of faith not cause us to focus unduly on these individual men and women, but the God who was their focus, the God whom they worship, on you, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the opportunity to worship together in this way. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So George Mueller's life can be mostly split up by his geographic location. He started his life in Prussia, which is what we now call Germany. Then to London and Tenmouth, and to Bristol, followed by missions around the world. And I would love 
to tell you this morning of everything that George Mueller did. But I anticipate you want to be out of here in time for lunch and maybe in time for supper. So I am not going to have time to tell you about the whole life of George Mueller. The average lifespan in his lifetime was somewhere in the neighborhood of 42 to 45. George Mueller passed away at the age of 92. And he used 72 of those years to faithfully serve the Lord. And thankfully, we have much to pull from. When I was looking at the life of George Mueller, I started looking for autobiographies or biographies to read, and there's a lot of them out there. There's probably half a dozen, but the biggest one and the most comprehensive one is his own four-volume autobiography taken largely from his journals. And he recorded every single thing in his journals that God did for him, every answer to prayer, and then eventually published them. And this was under some duress. I did not read his full four volumes, but there is an edited version that's taken it down to one volume. And in his preface, he said, I have reason to believe from what I have seen among the children of God that many of their trials arise either from want of confidence in the Lord as regards temporal things or from carrying on their business in an unscriptural way. On account, therefore, of the remarkable way in which the Lord has dealt with me in temporal things, I feel that I am a debtor to the church of God and I ought for the benefit of my poorer brethren especially to make known as much as I can the way in which I have been led. In addition to this, I know it to be a fact that to many souls the Lord has blessed what I have told them about the way in which he has led me, and therefore it seemed to me a duty to use such means whereby others also with whom I could not possibly converse might be benefited. Mr. Muller died at the end of the 1800s. He could not talk to us today, and yet through his autobiography, he does. He was born on September 27th, 1805, in Kroppenstedt, in the kingdom of Prussia. His father, Johann, was a tax collector for the government. And when we think of these great men of faith, when we hear as we will, of their incredible accomplishments for God's kingdom and their incredible life of faith in the Lord, sometimes we might be tempted to think they've lived a life that was kind of more or less uniformly godly, or at least mostly so. And yet this could not be further from the truth for George Mueller. Until the age of 20, he was just about as sinful as they come. As a young man, he's he was a liar, he was a fraudster, he was a thief. He was trained by his father to handle money, and he did so in the most unscrupulous of ways. He defrauded his friends, he defrauded his family, and many of his acquaintances of their own money for his own personal gain. And he was greatly taken with drunkenness and gambling, on the night when his mother died, 
This is what Miller had to say. I was 14 years old when my mother was suddenly removed. The night she was dying, I, not knowing of her illness, was playing at cards until two in the morning. And on the next day, being the Lord's Day, I went with some of my companions in sin to a tavern. and We went about the streets half intoxicated. The life of a great and godly man. Another one of the culminating moments of his wicked earlier life. He spent five weeks in prison for attempting to skip out on the bill of a fancy hotel that he stayed in with no intention of paying. The second hotel in as many periods of time, he went from one hotel, managed to get away from that one, tried to stay at another one, and got caught, and then spent five weeks in prison until his dad was able to find out about this and send the money to get him out of prison. And on top of the lying and the theft and fraud and drunkenness and his generally ungodly lifestyle, he also became, at his father's urging, a tremendous religious hypocrite. He says, between 10 and 11 years of age, I was sent to Hoblishstad to the Cathedral Classical School, there to be prepared for the university. For my father's desire was that I should become a clergyman. Not, indeed, that I might serve God, but that I might have a comfortable living. And later in life, after his conversion, George told his father of his desire to become a missionary. And rather than responding in an excitement, the response from his father was this, My father was greatly displeased and particularly reproached me, saying that he had expended so much money on my education in hope that he might comfortably spend his last days with me in a parsonage, and that he now saw all these prospects come to nothing. He was angry and told me he would no longer consider me as his son. On initial examination, this does not paint the picture of a theologian who would be so well-loved still some 200 years later, at least not one who would be as influential as he is. And yet, as we go on, I hope that Muller's prayers would be answered. He said the reason why he spoke so much about the sins of his earlier life, and he was hesitant to do so, not because of wanting to maintain his own reputation, but he did not want to make much of his weaknesses except to make much of Christ. And make much of Christ he did. While attending Halle University, legally, Muller attending that university and being enrolled in their divinity program, he was legally allowed in that time to preach in the church. But this was a man who was as far from God as they come, who was now allowed to preach. And this was far too common. His university, he says, was frequented by 1,260 students, 900 of whom studied divinity, all 900 of whom were allowed to preach in the church. And he says, although I believe not nine of them feared the Lord. I hate to think it, but I think there's many within even our own universities that fall in the same situations. 
But God grasped hold of this George Muller, and it happened in one particular glorious moment. One Saturday afternoon in the middle of November of 1825, he had taken a walk with his friend Beta. Him and Beta went for a walk, and they were talking, and they were regular partners in sinful activity, drinking and gambling and whatever it might be. But he told Miller that he had a habit of, on Saturday evenings, going to the house of a Christian. And there was a meeting that was held in that house. It wasn't an official church meeting. It was a brethren meeting. And on further inquiry, Beta told Mueller that they read the Bible, they sang, and they prayed, and then they read a printed sermon, where there was no preaching allowed unless there was an ordained clergyman present, so they had to read a printed sermon. Mueller decided to go. Some say that he decided to go just to go and make fun of these Christians. But when he was entered this house, he apologized for his state, knowing he was a sinful man. And these were the words he was welcomed with. Come as often as you please. House and heart are open to you. And during his time there that night, hearing prayers earnestly prayed, he'd never seen a person go to their knees in prayer before. Hearing the word earnestly read and the reading of this sermon, he marked this moment as the moment when he had been saved, when a work of grace had begun in him and he had had his life entirely changed. He was not saved that he would sin no more, nor would he cease to struggle with temptation, but these things no longer had mastery over him. Soon afterwards, he gained an interest in missionary work, and he found himself applying through a miraculous series of events. He applies and gets accepted into the Continental Society in England to train as a missionary to the Jews. And I encourage you, if you can, look up Mueller's biography, because the story of how he got in there is quite compelling. But he is accepted, and he has to travel to England for training. Originally, he goes to London, and he gets terribly ill in London. His sinful lifestyle throughout his life had left him quite often ill with bleeding in the stomach. So he got to London. He got terribly sick again, so he was moved for his health to the seaside town of Tenmouth. And here he became convicted of three theological distinctives that became defining of his, his ministry. First and foremost, he became totally convinced that the Word of God alone was and is the standard of judgment of spiritual things. He came from a state church where the scriptures were important, but they were not of this level of importance. He also became convinced of the doctrine of election that God had as he says in his scriptures, had chosen his people. And he also became convinced of believer's baptism. The exchange that led to him becoming convinced of believer's baptism is probably one of my favorite things that I read in his 
biography as far as entertainment value goes. But to sum it up, he had a sister that had been baptized by immersion as a believer, and then another one who was considering how she ought to be baptized. And they asked Muller's opinion, and he said that he had been baptized as a child, so yes, that counts, and that's good enough. And the one sister who had been baptized turned to him and asked, have you ever read scriptures and prayed with reference to this subject? To which he answered, no. Her answer, then I entreat you never to speak any more about it until you've done so. Don't talk to me until you've read the Bible and understand what it says. And off of that quip, he decided, well, I am going to study the scriptures on this subject. And he became convinced and was baptized as a believer by immersion. I could keep you here for hours talking about this man of faith. He was prolific and he was industrious. His life was long and well used by God. He ministered as a pastor for 20 some odd years. He founded SKI, which is the Scriptural Knowledge Institute, with his friend and fellow minister, Henry Craig. And SKI still exists today and still supports missionaries around the world. At the time, his ministry helped the ministry of one Hudson Taylor, who is the founder of China Inland Mission. And SKI today supports some 160 individuals and organizations around the world. Such his ministry continues. So do I focus on that? Or do I focus on the fact that nearing the end of his life, he decided to pivot and go into global missions. 17 years of missionary journeys around the world to 42 different countries. Canada, Japan, Australia, Egypt, and everywhere in between. And he started, started these 17 years of travel at 71. So from age 71 to 88, he traveled the entire world, not by plane in air conditioning, not by car, but by horse and buggy, by steamship, by sailboat, by rickshaw, all around the world. And while doing so, he preached in his three primary fluent languages, either in German or English or French. He also could preach in Hebrew because he trained as a missionary to the Jews. But in these three primary languages, he would preach, and then it would be translated to the people who'd come. So do I focus on that 17-year period? But ultimately, I wanted to zero in on the ministry which he was most known for. He pastored for years, and early on in his pastoral role, he determined never to take a salary from his church. He got married, and him and his wife decided that he was not going to take a salary, and he was never going to ask for funds. He would entirely depend on God to, through prayer to supply his temporal needs. He put a box in the back of his church, and that was the entirety of what he did to receive a salary. 
whatever was dropped in that box was what they lived off of. And he speaks quite clearly that they never went without. But he felt that God had designs on doing something further with his life. He saw needs of so many around him, and particularly their need for the word and relationship with God through prayer. And that all culminated together in the year 1835. There was a cholera epidemic that was sweeping through the nation at that time. And there was widespread food shortages due to various wars that had been going on and government policies. So there were an abundance of orphans walking the streets. At this time, he lived in Bristol, England. Hundreds of thousands of orphans living in England. And they had to choose between begging and going to the workhouse. Those were their options as far as survival. Their parents killed by the epidemic or whatever it might be. So George Mueller set about opening the first of his orphan houses. And he explains in his autobiography his reason for opening these. I long to set something before the children of God, meaning the whole church, not just these orphans. I long to set something before the children of God whereby they might see that he does not forsake, even in our day, those who rely on him. Also, I long to be instrumental in strengthening their faith by giving them not only instances from the word of God of his willingness and ability to help all those who rely on him, but to show them by proofs that he is the same in our day. I well knew that the word of God ought to be enough, and it was by grace enough for me. But still I considered that I ought to lend a helping hand to my brethren, if by any means, by this visible proof of the unchangeable faithfulness of the Lord, I may strengthen their hands in God. I judge myself bound to be the servant of the church of God in the particular point on which I had obtained mercy, namely in being able to take God at his word and to rely upon it. All these exercises of my soul were used by God to awaken in my heart the desire of setting before the church at large and before the world a proof <clears throat> that he has not in the least changed. And this seemed to me best done by the establishing of an orphan house. It needed to be something which could be seen even by the natural eye. Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. This then was the primary reason for establishing the orphan house. I certainly did from my heart desire to be used by God to benefit the bodies of poor children, bereaved of both parents, and seek in other respects with the help of God to do them good for this life, I also particularly long to be used by God in getting the dear orphans trained up in the fear of God. But still the first and primary object of the work was and still is that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. 
And so the process began. Mueller laid out his plan and asked for nothing. He didn't start a big funding campaign. He made plans. And he never took on, in his whole life, one cent of debt from his conversion onwards. And yet, by prayer, the donations began to roll in. And Muller opened his first orphan house the next year in 1836. This was in his own home, and it accommodated 30 orphan girls. That one home soon became four homes on one street, totaling 120 orphans of all ages. And as you can imagine, this eventually led to complaints from the neighbors. 120 rowdy, shabby orphans living on your street might get a little bit much some days, especially if you are not of the same mind. So in typical style, Muller began praying for God's leading and became convinced to buy new land outside of town. And again, asking for no money, he, with the Lord's help, began to pursue this. And in stages, land was purchased, and five humongous buildings were built over the next 20 years. Five buildings that at their peak housed some 2,000 orphan children with room to play in, room to learn, fields to be worked by the older boys, the whole thing. All of these children were taught life skills and academics. And this training was so thorough that he was accused by many in his city of robbing the factories, mills, and mines of their labor. He was accused of raising orphans above their station. Boys were kept at the orphanage until they were 14, at which time they were placed in an apprenticeship program where they could then go on into trades, and girls were kept until they were 17. And most importantly, each one of these children were taught to know the Lord. They were all taught the scriptures, and when they left, it is said that Muller personally would greet each one of them and put a Bible in one hand and a half-crown coin in the other hand and said, your hand with the Bible should never be empty. Muller did have children of his own, although only one, a daughter, Lydia, survived infancy. But through these homes, George Muller became something of a father to 18,000 children that were provided for and raised in these orphan homes during their lifetime. And all the while, his goal remained the same. His primary goal never became the orphans, never became the work that he was doing, and his work got major attention. One of his big proponents in those days was the great writer Charles Dickens. He became a huge fan of Muller's and started to be a proponent of his work as well, but he was never wrapped up in that. He wanted to provide for these children but primarily he wanted to demonstrate to everyone who would dare look or listen the power of prayer and the Word of God to provide for his people. That God was as powerful in their day as he had ever been. 
and that people would see God to be faithful, just as he himself had seen God to be faithful throughout his years. This morning, Dick read from Matthew chapter 6, and that was one of many passages that was formative for Mueller. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Many of you will know it well. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What will be added? Throughout Matthew 6, we have food, drink, clothing, all of these things, the care of the body, they were all obviously not at the center of Mueller's life. Otherwise, he would have taken a salary from the church. And in choosing not to take a salary from the church, part of that was at the time there was the practice of pew rents where the wealthy families would buy out a pew, usually at the front of the church. Wouldn't work so well here, but maybe I, if we're going to bring that in here, we'll rent out the back pews to the wealthy families. But he got rid of the pew rents in his church because he saw the commands of scriptures that there be no favoritism amongst the people. So he got rid of those and said, I am not going to take a penny except what comes by prayer and comes unasked for. No, Muller's eyes were on the prize, as it were, on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So much so that even the well-being of orphans was a secondary thing. And I think that's something that we most definitely should be learning from. He knew that if he sought God wholeheartedly and without any hesitation, without anything held back, without any safety net to catch him, if he pursued God, then even the ones in his care, his own family or the orphans that he looked after, that these two would find themselves cared for. What would it look like in our society for the some 11 million children in Canada if their parents, and particularly, looking this morning, particularly their fathers as they lead their homes, would truly seek first the kingdom of God above everything else. Not the kingdom of their own family. Not the kingdom of self-fulfillment. Not the kingdom of sports games. Not the kingdom of the Canadian dream. But God's kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost by a mile. Sometimes we feel like if we wholeheartedly serve God, then what's going to be left over for our families? What's going to be left over for our friends or for ourselves or for our work? But Matthew 6 tells us that if we are faithful to God in all things, even in all of those areas, if we make God to come first, and then all of the rest of those things will find their right position and priority. If I focus wholeheartedly on God, God is faithful to care for me. 
God is faithful to care for my family. God is faithful to care for my needs. God is faithful to care for my enjoyment of life. Although that enjoyment of life might look significantly different if our focus is entirely on God. I think we, like Muller, would find ourselves willing to carry out into our lives whatever we should find in the Scriptures. And this would be a very good thing. I don't begrudge the people who take a salary from their work, and I am certainly not trying to argue myself out of a salary here at this church. I don't anticipate, at least at this point, God has not convicted me of the need to just put a box at the back and ask you to fill it. But what would it look like for us to trust wholeheartedly in God, as did George Mueller? To trust Him to fulfill all of our needs. And for the fathers in particular, does your practice of meditation on God's Word, does your practice of prayer to God the Father, reflect a wholehearted desire to seek God first. And before any of you get too down on yourself, I will tell you, mine doesn't. And it needs to. And if it does, then God is faithful to provide. One last thing that I found interesting is that Muller very easily could have been one of the early prosperity gospel guys. He very easily could have been driving himself a, the fanciest horse and buggy he could have gotten because the, the story is that throughout, and Muller was absolutely meticulous about recording every tiny donation that came in. And his donations add up to a sum of a million and a half British pounds in the mid-1800s, which equates to over 100 million British pounds in today's finances. Literally over 100 million British pounds donated to the ministry in which he was at work. And this was not Muller's focus. Money was not his focus. It was that recording of every tiny coin that came in was that he might turn it all back over to God, be utterly transparent about it, and be incredibly grateful for it. To read his journal entries, and he had a lady come and bring him two pence, and it just happened to be enough so he could buy tea for, or cream for his tea. And just the gratitude and the prayer that came out in that little journal note. And then he had people come in and bring 10,000 pounds for the opening of the first of his orphan houses that he built. He had the architect for the first of those orphan houses come in and say, I want to build this, I want to do all of the drawings and all of the diagrams, and I'm going to do it for free. He had the person who they bought acres and acres and acres of land for this right outside a busy city and they came to him and said 
we'll sell you our land, but we're not taking asking price from you. We'll pay, you can pay half asking price. And Muller, every single one of those entries, all you can see is just this incredible gratitude for God sending these things unasked for, unannounced, and say, God, you have done this. I didn't ask these people to do this. This is not me. This is you, God. And in our own lives, if we are faithful to seek God first, how much more grateful will we be to him that he has provided for us? I mentioned earlier Hebrews 12. That's great cloud of witnesses. And that great cloud includes men of faith such as George Mueller, women of faith such as Ruth Piper, George Mueller was faithful for the last 72 years of his life. And this company of such men and women should press us to carry on in the faith, to truly lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Our eyes ever upon Jesus, our eyes ever fixed on his kingdom and his righteousness. So may we thank God for Godly men and women, men such as George Mueller, men and women found throughout scriptures as examples of the faith, of men that we know personally, women that we know personally, godly fathers, godly mothers, godly mentors. May we be thankful to each one of these people, and may the memory of them or even their presence with us drive us to say, I want to serve God as they did. I want everything that they did that was for God's glory to be reflected in me as well. And that and even more. May we be spurred on in the faith that we might be found as ones who have persevered unto the end. Persevered in the faith of the God who has proved himself over and over and over again that he is faithful to his people. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, you are faithful. You are good. You have cared for us in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. We wouldn't even believe it if you laid it out in front of us, the things that you have done to care for us. The things throughout all of history that have culminated in the life that we are living now under your guidance and your plan. Lord, we ask that you would inspire in our hearts as you did in the life of George Mueller a total devotion to your kingdom and your righteousness a hunger for the word that surpasses words. A desire to come before you and to commune with you in prayer that surpasses our own desire for any of the other temporal things that we can so easily get distracted by. Lord, may the excuses that we make of why we don't have time to spend time in the Word turned to ashes in our mouth. 
May the excuses that we make for why we don't spend time in prayer be bitter for us to say, for we know that we have time for the Word. We know that we have time for prayer, and we know that if we don't have time for those things, that the Word and prayer are not the things that should be cut out. So, Lord, we confess that we have not been in your word or in prayer as much as we should have been. And, Lord, if we take the time to pray and to be in your word and to give you all honor and glory, we ask that you would show us your faithfulness. That you would use that time in our lives and you would show us that sacrificing that time to spend with you is the absolute best thing we could do with our time. And Lord, we commit the families in our church to you. We commit each one who is a family member, biological or adoptive, or simply just a friend of the family who has acted as a mentor or a leader in the faith. Continue to use them to strengthen and equip our children. And may we be dedicated to you and your righteousness, to your word and to prayer. Not for our own glory, not for our own good, not even for the good of those around us, but for you. Lord, we commit these things. We commit each one here and each one who would hear this message into your care, asking that you would continue to prove yourself faithful even in our day. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.